Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Welcome to an episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. Today's guest is Daniel Tremarkey, and he is part of the KPMG Private Enterprise Family Business Practice, which specializes in family governance and succession planning. So we are really excited, partly because I know very little about this subject, and I'd love to get more edification about it. And I think it's really important to the families and the professionals this podcast is aimed to educate and support. So welcome. No, thank you. It's great to be here and really looking forward to it. So I just want to start with a broad question. In terms of trends with behavioral health and physical health, let's use mental health, substance use disorders, eating disorders, and other disorders that seem to impact people above the neck. What kind of trends are you seeing in your, you know, international practice right now? I think for me, it's it's definitely on the increase, but I don't think that's increasing in the sense of the underlying issue. I think what we're seeing is an increase on on two fronts. Um, so with the families that, that I spend my time with, a lot of this is around the level of awareness and the level of education um, around these topics. That has definitely been on the increase and that's leading to higher levels of diagnosis and, and therefore higher levels of support. So I think that awareness and education piece is there. Uh, and I think the second point is probably that removal of the the stigma or the desire to potentially ignore it. So that higher level of recognition is something that I think is leading to what you would say is an, an increasing trend, but I think not in a bad way. I think it's actually in a, in a positive way that it's being addressed and discussed and learnt about. And I think podcasts like this are a great way of doing that. So I, I appreciate the work that you, you guys are doing in, in really bringing this together. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. It's nice of you to say that. And it's great to hear that from your perspective, the stigma is decreasing or, or slightly changing from past decades, because we see it the same way. You know, I always say as much as it's depressing to pick up a newspaper in any major country, in any major city, and see rates of opioid use or rates of depression and anxiety, particularly during COVID. I think the good news is that it's not just the journal of psychology that sits on a professor's desk that is discussing this. We now are seeing it in mainstream news outlets. And I think the awareness of the general population and hopefully the, the awareness of the affluent population has increased. And that ability to talk about it openly will mean that more people access care. I think if we, you know, one question I had for you is if we think about just overall holistic mental health and wellness, you know, how do you see those issues impacting the clients you serve? I think for me, I I draw some parallels to how we look at this from a a next generation perspective. We, We spend a lot of time working with our families around continuity planning and and succession planning and when we're working with the generations around the readiness of the next generation 
there's there's four levels or four criteria that we often assess against and we talk about their capability so we talk about their technical competency uh, their expertise in the the field or expertise in the role we talk about their ability uh, which is different to capability in the sense of this is more about their ability to allocate the time uh, if they are in the right geography. It's, it's hard to run a family business based in Germany if you're living in the US. Um, or also family commitments. We see the next generation at different ages and stages within their family. So that creates potential issues on the ability. The, the third is that desire. Do they actually want to do this? Do they want to take on this role within the family business? And the final, the final one is in relation to the business need. So do we actually have a need within the family? And the reason I draw those parallels coming back to your question is I think the impact of mental health and physical health, especially within those first three criteria, so where we're assessing the capability of an individual, the ability of the individual, and the desire of that individual to play a role um, is becoming very prevalent. And so to, to Diana's earlier point, the increased awareness and education is helping us to have these conversations when we're looking at the next generation and, and being a part of that discussion. So I think the mental health aspect of it is vital for us when we're assessing that. And I use the next generation as an example there, but this is something that is across all generations as well. I think that makes Thanks. total sense. I Thank think one you. question we would also have is sort of how do you think about your own goals as an advisor to these families supporting your clients' well-being? Like what is your role and, and how do you think about not overstepping that boundary of doing something on behalf of someone but also being supportive towards getting, you know, somebody into the right place if they're clearly struggling? Mm -hmm. I think... Our, our ultimate goal when we're working with families from a, a governance perspective is helping identify where we talk about purpose we talk about their definition of success um, and every family defines success differently and they're built from both financial factors and non-financial factors um, there's a lot of research in the field around socio-emotional wealth and how some of these family-based factors are key drivers in a lot of the decision making and so when we're looking to support clients having an appreciation for the well-being aspect that you mentioned and the the socio-emotional wealth aspect um, is very important and the key I guess counterbalance to that is understanding my role in that piece and the role of all of us as advisors to understand mental health better um, and to have an awareness around it to identify it but to also know my boundaries when it comes to as you said dealing with it i think family governance is in its infancy as an industry when you compare it to an industry like illegal or tax but that creates some softer boundaries between the roles that we play and i think as mental health becomes more and more of a, a prevalent topic on these agendas with families, my role and my goal is to have that identification phase, have that ability to understand it, but also then know um, who to speak to and how I can support the family in addressing that because that isn't my expertise. Um, and I think that's been a really interesting balance across the governance industry 
is how we tap into some of the technical areas like tax or legal, but I think more so on a growing basis from a mental health and a physical health perspective, how we coordinate and work to, to achieve what the client is trying to achieve. What I would find in my imagination challenging would be you're dealing with the very things that create family discord succession planning, governance, who's in charge, all of those things. What are our family values? How do we pursue them? How do you do that without getting really embroiled in that kind of conversation with the family? I think it's, it's a great question because, as you said, these are not, these are not factual or, or um, purely financial discussions. And it's often when we're having these discussions that the, the emotive aspect we meet families, I meet families quite often who say, well, we're really dysfunctional and we have a lot of issues with communication and misalignment and we don't make decisions well together. But when you actually start to understand the dynamics of the family, it's really just 10% of their business that is misaligned or 10% of their views that are misaligned, but it's that 10% that is, to your point, so emotionally charged that it over, um, I guess it, it, it overtakes the wider level of alignment. So our work dealing with that emotional aspect of this and that, that non-financial aspect, I think is important. And, and I guess the way we deal with it or the way that I deal with it is by coming back to the frameworks and the methodologies that we have to help facilitate these discussions. I'm, I'm not here to tell a family whether or not they should employ their next generation or whether or not they should give shares to spouses. There's many good reasons why you should and there's many good reasons why you shouldn't. Um, and it's up to the family to drive that and they have to buy into that um, outcome. So really for us, it's about providing that independence, that objectivity but actually that safe space to have those conversations and come to those solutions and and try and de-escalate some of that emotion. You know, in your experience, I'd be curious to know, have you seen the ability to have financial resources equate with better care, either in the mental health or physical health systems, you know, in any of your clients' geographies? I'm curious to see, you know, I think people always assume more money means better. And I'm curious if that's been your experience working with clients. I think the, the cost, I mean, the cost of getting support is definitely a barrier for some families. So by, by as a result of being an affluent family, uh, it does remove some of those barriers to access. But I think in my experience, what I found is it, it much more comes down to the, the quality of the service. And there isn't always that direct correlation behind very expensive service equals very good service. And I think the, the premise here is actually finding the people with the right level of expertise, but also the right level of emotional intelligence and connectivity to the family and the family's style. So I've seen families go off and seek treatment at very expensive um, centres and, and try and get that support, but they've always had issues with the, the family collectively and the individual in question kind of actually buying into that and being a part of it because it doesn't match with their own dynamic and their own ethos and, and values. So I think for me, expensive service doesn't always guarantee 
better service. And I think that applies across all industries. Um, you can think about going to a, a fancy restaurant and it doesn't mean that you're going to love the food. Um, but I think how you, how you deal with that is important. And I think the one flip side to that is that affluence can also be an amplifier for these issues um, where you have families that do have this level of wealth it creates and and amplifies and accelerates potential issues that may otherwise be there but uh, are not enabled or are not able to be enabled so i think there's always as everything there's pros and cons to both sides but i think it does it does create an opportunity for families to seek out that help where where they can so uh, i'm hearing the double-edged sword it can leave mm-hmm. somebody vulnerable to treatments that may or may not be better simply the more expensive but it also can amplify the disorder itself by the fact that that person doesn't have to necessarily be functional on a day-to-day basis is that what i'm gathering yes yeah no definitely i think that that idea of people are are kind of often a byproduct of their surroundings and their environment and so where you're learning certain ways or you if you have or haven't had the ability to learn certain things throughout your your adulthood or your early adulthood that can definitely impact your ability to respond and deal to situations when it comes to dealing with affluence and, and managing these situations so yes i think there's always the the positives um and then and and part of i think what we do is often trying to manage the positives and and mitigate the negatives and and really governance is a is a form of that in what it does it's around amplifying the positive elements and using that as a way to actually encourage things like cohesive decision making communication transparency accountability loyalty trust Um, And then what we often see is sometimes money can be um, a a detriment to that and can actually look to break down some of those things. So definitely, I think a double-edged sword is is a great way to put it. So when you're working with that affluent family, what is usually your role? So most families come to us when there's a level of change in their ecosystem. And so I often equate it to a change in complexity and we're working with both a a business system and a family system so that discussion of a business system changing is often a liquidity event it could be the sale of the family business it could be the purchase of a new business or an adjacent business it could be the kind of strong growth or strong decline in the business something has changed within that system which has upset the the status quo and then the same can apply it on the family system side. We had, I had a colleague that once referred to it as hatches, matches, and dispatches, which was his way of explaining births, marriages, and deaths. That's and great. And so through that, through that idea of, of these different elements changing within the system, it, it upsets a, a stace, uh, I guess, a position of equilibrium. And that's really our role. Our role is to try and maintain that level of equilibrium back to what I mentioned earlier, which was that idea of purpose. Once we're able to help a family identify their definition of success, then our role within governance is to build that road, I guess, between current state and future state. So 
if we know that there's a, a desired level of success which is equated to financial return but also non-financial return in the shape of community involvement, in the shape of providing jobs for the next generation, maintaining the family legacy, giving back to the community, we can then understand, well, how do we establish a governance system which provides that? And governance in that sense really is a way of doing things. We, we talk about policies, procedures and structures, but ultimately it comes down to communication, decision-making, boundaries, roles and responsibilities, and finding a way to document that. And often what it is is taking something that was quite implicit for some generations and turning it explicit. And, and that's a required action when the family grows in size. Um, I, I think to a, a first-generation founder, if you are the sole shareholder, the chairman of the board, the CEO, and the matriarch of the family, then when it comes to communication or decision-making, uh, I had one client who used to say, well, I have my board meetings in the shower. Um, <laughs> and that was, that was to say, well, I am all of those four people. So if I need to make a decision, I check it with myself and I do it. And that is governance. And that is in many cases a form of natural governance which created, which is created quite organically. It's only when we then, if we go back to that complexity change or that trigger, they're then looking to pass this on to their three kids, one of which works in the business, two of which don't, one of which may have a mental health issue. What does decision-making look like in that world now? How is communication going to have to change? How is the roles and responsibilities of those individuals going to change to the roles that their mother had? And really that, that comes down to our role, is how do we support families to build the structure that they need to achieve that equilibrium of what success means to them as a family and what success means to them as a business? So I'm curious, I'm sure there are so many lessons you've learned over your career because there are just so many dynamics and the types of families you're serving. But I'm curious if you've had a story or um, some type of professional lesson that you've experienced related to clients that are dealing with mental, physical, emotional health. I think one of the, one of the earliest lessons I learned in this was around personal biases and and we talk about the consultant's bias in this and that was important for me in the sense of when you're working with these families and they're making these decisions as I said these decisions are made by the family for the family we are the often the mouthpiece to provide that and we we can facilitate that but the solutions are theirs and it's important to not bring in any of my own personal bias when it comes to the decisions that are being made. Uh, I think of an example with a family I worked with previously where they did have one of the one of the, the next generation who had a, a mental health issue and their treatment of that may not be of how I would have treated it within my own family, but that doesn't mean that it's right nor wrong. And they sought professional help and they did all the right things and they made their judgment calls based on the expert advice that they were given. And that was a way of dealing with it, which was completely appropriate and apt. 
Um, but there was multiple ways in which it could have been dealt with. And I think that was an important lesson for me back to that idea of setting those boundaries and appreciating where we sit on the situation is that we can provide a lot of this support, but it's a very different solution to my previous profession. So when I joined KPMG 12 years ago, I started within our our private enterprise tax practice and I worked with family businesses but with a very much tax and accounting based lens. And so my relationship with clients was as a service provider and a solution provider. They would provide me with their receipts and their tax return, their tax information. I would go away, I would produce an output and I would give that to them and they would say thank you very much and be on their way. And so it was a very, not a transactional relationship in any way, but it was very much about me providing a solution rather than them providing the answer. I wasn't asking my client to complete their tax return for them. I was doing that and providing that service. And so this evolution of now for the past six, seven years, focusing on family governance, I've moved away from being a solution provider to being someone who's providing that framework and that environment to facilitate these outcomes and I think with that comes that point around personal bias is that I'm no longer the owner of the solution and I think that's really important for a lot of advisors to understand is that we are not there to judge we are there to provide that independence that objectivity we're there to kind of de-escalate the emotion where possible um, but we're not providing a solution and therefore that ability to judge the solution outside of doing so in our and our expert capacity is is not to be done. So I think that was something that it was definitely especially going from a profession where you were you were paid to provide a solution. I think that was a an evolution for me. I can understand that. I think we do come to any what we consider to be a issue or conflict or anything with how we think it ought to go and it makes sense to me that we don't get to impose that on a family and their governance and succession planning. Mm -hmm. I love to hear how people have developed through the years. What kind of advice had you been given about mental health issues and about family systems that helped you develop this very clear expertise in seeing things in a very whole person and whole system way. It's quite funny that the worlds collided, I think, for me. One of, the, one of my early introductions into family governance was through systems theory and, and Bowen, Bowen theory. And there's, there's many people, if you, if you look to, to the internet or even just to the various um, specialists out there, there's people that can talk to this at a, at a way higher level than I can. But it was a really interesting idea around how we work with families at that holistic level. Um, I was actually listening to one of your earlier podcasts just the other day, and, and Katie was talking about planning with the next generation instead of planning for the next generation and how you actually build that at a systems level. And it was quite interesting that that had actually come from the systems theory concept where that was someone who was looking at a mental health issue in terms of schizophrenia and what he had found was that taking the individual out of the system and treating them and then returning them back into the system was not returning the results 
um, because they would always regress and revert back into the kind of their position within the system, which was often to play that role. And so it was really interesting to learn and understand around his solution to that was to bring the entire family system to the treatment for that issue and deal with it and then let the system return, but as a collective. And then they saw much higher returns of of the ability to adopt and deal with the the treatment and to move forward. And I think that was something for me in terms of my approach to family governance um, and approach to mental health is that it has to be done at a, a system level. It has to be done at the holistic level, both in terms of the advisors who are there to provide their various levels of support and their various technical competencies, but also the fact that we are dealing with a living human system that is subject to change and that has multiple people in it with multiple perspectives and points of views. I mean, I think back to the three circle model as well and that parallel between how we look at the perspectives and the values that drive the behaviours. For me, that was so critical in bringing that together. Um, So I think that's something that has stuck with me and has been very useful when I look to approach these solutions and to work with families is to do it very much on an inclusive basis and to do it also very much on a system level basis because that is what, in my experience, has shown the greatest level of, of return and the greatest level of progress collectively when we're dealing with these issues. That is so similar to the way I like to approach any issue is from that system's perspective, because we as a company have witnessed that person who goes off to a treatment program for, let's just say, substance use, and the family hasn't done their bit during that stint that person's coming back to all of the patterns and sinew and tendon of being part of that family hand and if that doesn't shift the odds of relapse are astronomically high Mm -hmm. i think that we i look at that another family that i worked with previously and we we talked about the idea of the individual in question here actually their their dysfunction was an enabler for the system to function and and that was the kind of the the issue at point was actually them being dysfunctional was allowing the rest of the system to function and so that meant that there was very little kind of desire to change but fundamentally everyone understood that that was not the solution and so when you were to look at it at an individual level versus a system level the the concept of what was the issue and what was the problem was completely reversed and so it was only when you could take that step back and appreciate both the individual benefit and the group benefit of how this was being structured that we were able to to move forward and it it's something that we often work with another i suppose bit of advice that i was given and that i use with a lot of families was around how we define success within the outcome and we say we we do it on four levels we say is this right for me as an individual is this right for the family collectively is this right for the business and then the final check is does this actually make sense in the real world and so if we can look at a, a problem or we can look at something at those four levels 
and we can have that comfort that this is right for the individuals individually, this is right for the individuals collectively, this is right for the business, and this is something that is practical and applicable to the external environment in which we work, we then believe that that solution is much more viable. And it's only if you can pass those different stage gates and more importantly, be comfortable with the trade-offs that you're making at those stage gates um, that something will sustain. Because it's impossible to answer those four questions as kind of unequivocal yeses. There will be trade-offs being made either by the collective, by the individual, by the business. I mean, a perfect example is the employment of a, a family member. The business might say, well, actually, person X over there who's non-family is much more qualified, but I'm willing to make the trade-off because family harmony is important here and providing job opportunities for family is important here. So as the business, I will accept a potentially lower return of this family member versus this external candidate, um, but I know that it's the right thing when I look at it across all those levels. So I think managing those trade-offs and managing those perspectives um, is very important when we're looking at the the quality of the solution and understanding whether it will actually have long-term applicability. Excellent. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today. I think your points will really help the work of many of the advisors out there. We'd love to close our podcast with just a request of our guests to provide some parting words of wisdom to any of our listeners. So if you want to do that, I'd love to hear them and then we'll close out the episode. No, thank you. And it's it's been a pleasure to be on today. Uh, I think my, my parting advice would be that idea of inclusivity. And so when we're having these conversations and when you're having these conversations as a family, it's important to ensure that you are bringing those that are going to be affected by the change involved into the decision because ultimately you collectively will be living with the change that is going on and and governance will bring about that change and provide support but it's very important to ensure that the various perspectives are are known and accepted so I, i think my my last tip would be around that point of inclusivity in in how we go about working through many of these issues you mean no more private secrets (laughs) (laughs) exactly no more backroom deals or or side conversations i think the the level of transparency is a direct correlation to to having that ability to to, as you said move forward but move forward together and and with a degree of, of family harmony i love that thank you We appreciate you joining us as a guest, Daniel, and those listeners out there. Thank you for listening to our podcast, Beyond the Balance Sheet. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet, a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.